And as always, let's do the smart thing before we uh, get into the Word. Heavenly Father, it is good to be here this morning. Uh, thank you for that time of worship. Thank you for this, that special to really stop and just uh, think of you and prepare our hearts for what you have to say during the message today. And Lord, as always, we pray your spirit would teach, we would listen. Go before all things, Lord. And, um, and once again, Lord, we just want to pray for our men and women serving in the field. Just keep them safe, bring them back safe. And uh, Lord, also for our, our leaders, our nation, just for your hand to be upon it, for us to seek you in all ways. In your name, amen. All right, we're going to be in Esther, Esther 5, 6, and 7, hopefully, this morning. Now, last week we took a little bit of a break uh, for Easter, so getting back into it. And a real quick reminder, if you're there in chapter 5, just jump back a few verses to verse 14. It says, Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. We talked about how that's the key verse in the book of Esther. God working behind the scenes, moving things around, even though we don't see what's going on. And that we have to trust that God has a plan and a purpose, even though we don't see it. And sometimes we don't see it. One of the interesting things here about the book of Esther is this idea of it's ten chapters long, and the name of God is never mentioned once during any of it. Doesn't that feel like your life sometimes and my life sometimes? God is moving, God is working, but yet I don't see him, I don't feel him. I wonder, Lord, what are you doing? Well, quick review here. In chapters 1 and 2, Esther becomes queen. Now that's a God thing. There's no way Esther should have become queen. Here she is. She's this young Jewish gal. Next thing you know, she is now queen of the kingdom of Persia. God put her there for a reason. Now, why did God put her there for a reason? Because in Esther 3 and 4, we find out that there's this man by the name of Haman that wants all the Jews destroyed and killed. And so, therefore, God has moved Esther, who is a Jew, into this position of power because he knew this man Haman was going to be there to try to kill all the Jews. And God is moving these puzzle pieces around even when we don't see it. Well, here in Esther 5, 6, and 7, you see it all come together now. It all comes together. Verse 1 of Esther chapter 5. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, across from the king's house, while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in his court that she found favor in his sight, and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. So Esther answered, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today for the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went into the banquet that Esther had prepared. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom it shall be done. Then Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this. If I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill all my requests, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king had said. Now this is kind of a big deal. This is actually a real big deal. Because if you remember correctly from chapter 4, Esther just couldn't go into the king and say, Hey, I want to talk to you. That wasn't allowed. He's the king. Yeah, she's the queen, but he's the king. She just couldn't go in and say, King, I want to talk to you. This man by the name of Haman has a decree out there. He wants to kill all Jews. By the way, I'm a Jew. That means he's going to kill me and all my people. Please do something about it. That wouldn't have worked. She couldn't have just gone in and done that. So it had to be a God-ordained thing, or I like to say a God thing, or a God appointment, that this all just happens to work out. She happens to walk by. The king happens to see her. The king happens to call her in. And the king happens to be in a good mood in verse 3. He says, whatever do you want, Esther. That's a God thing. There's a great verse in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 16, verse 7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. 
When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now, I never really fully understood that verse. Because I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I try to please the Lord, and my enemies aren't at peace with me. And I've also seen things in the world where someone's trying to do what's right. They're trying to please the Lord, but there's still this hostility and enemy. Well, I, I think Esther here is a good example of this verse coming into play. Because if you look at this from a technical point of view, the king is the enemy of Esther. He's the one that signed the paper saying, well, let the Jews be destroyed. Now, he didn't know his wife was a Jew, but he signed that paper. He's the enemy. See, so often we forget what God simply says. God says, I'll take care of that person. You just focus on serving me. See, so often when we get ourselves worked up over people and situations and scenarios, we get worked up about those people. I can't believe they're saying this about me. I can't believe they're doing this. And so we get all of our energy and attention and focus is placed on individuals where God really just says, serve me and I'll take care of that person. How many times do we get caught up in what other people say and do? God says, just serve me and I'll take care of that person. Esther is a great example of that. Now, I've always kind of wondered too, She's given an opportunity in verse 3 to say, whatever you want, you can have. Why didn't she answer and say right then? Okay, so maybe she was buttering him up a little bit, verse 4. Well, come back down again in verse 6. You can have anything you want. It shall be done. Why doesn't she take it in verse 7? Why doesn't she finally say what's going on? See, there's another verse that comes to mind. Matthew 10, 16 says that we as Christians are supposed to be wise as serpents, as peaceful as doves. God says you're supposed to be wise in how you react, when you react, and what you say. See, so often I look at verse 7 and say, Okay, Esther, the door's been open. You can ask anything you want. Why aren't you doing it? And we say, Okay, the door's open. I'm going to go with it. Do you realize how often we see a door open and we just assume then, Well, a door's open. God must want me to go. And so we go. It doesn't matter if the door's open. It doesn't matter if the door's closed. What matters most is the Lord leading you to do it or not do it. Because I've seen times in my life where the door looked wide open. It really looked like the Lord was saying, this is the time to do it. This is the time to move, the time to say something. And God said, no, keep your mouth shut. There's also been times where the opposite has happened, where it looked like the door was closed. And I said, okay, I assume God's closed that door. God said, that door's not closed. I have a plan and I have a purpose for you with that. With Esther here, it sure looks like in verse 7 and 8 that the door is open. Why doesn't she take it? Why doesn't she move with that? Why doesn't she do it? Obviously, the Lord is leading wisdom. Not yet. Now is not the time. So she's waiting for that right moment. She's waiting for that right time of when it's supposed to be. It's not there. I just want to remind you, it doesn't matter if you think the door is open. It doesn't matter if you think the door is closed. If the door is open, it doesn't mean God's leading you. If the door is closed, it doesn't mean he shut the door. You have to trust that the Lord is guiding and directing. So often as Christians, I hear them say, well, it worked out, so it must have been. No. Just because it quote-unquote works out doesn't mean it's God's will. God's will means that he has led you, guided you, and directed you to that plan and purpose. See, it looks like God has worked it out. How did God not work this out? Look at verse 6. What is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom it shall be done. Is that not an open door? No, it's not. The Lord is not leading yet. There's more going on. There's more that's going to happen here. Esther obviously knew it was time to sit back and wait. Wisdom and knowing what to say, when to say, how to say it. Let's find out a little bit more about Haman here, verse 9. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Just a quick reminder, Mordecai is Esther's uncle. Mordecai doesn't like Haman. 
Haman wants everybody to bow down to him. Mordecai refuses to do that. It's kind of interesting. As you and I read through these next few verses, keep this in the back of your mind. Haman means magnificent. That's what his name actually means, is magnificent. Haman has to be one of the most prideful men in all of the Bible. With a name like Magnificent. I don't know if that's something he named himself, or if that's what his parents saw some great thing with him as a kid. I don't know. But look at these next verses, and just keep that, mind, that idea in the back of your mind, this prideful man. <coughs> Verse 10 says, Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Do you know anybody like Haman? They just can't stop talking about themselves. I mean, look at verse 11 again. Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the advanced king had promoted him, how he advanced him above the officials. Don't you hate hanging around Hamans that just never stop talking about themselves? I know people like that. They're great, wonderful Christians. How do you know they're great, wonderful Christians? Because they tell you they're great, wonderful Christians. And so this guy Haman, whose name means magnificent, here he is prideful, and he just can't help talking about himself. It's all about him. Verse 12, Moreover, Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther has invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared, and tomorrow I'm again invited by her along with the king. I don't know about you, but when I envision Haman, don't you envision this short little guy with beady little eyes, just really weaselly and annoying? You know, I, I said at the first service, he's probably six and a half feet tall and muscular, I don't know, but... I envision this just annoying little man. Verse 12, excuse me, verse 13, Yet all this avails me nothing, so as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Suresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made fifty cubits high, and in the morning suggested the king that Mordecai be hanged on it, and go merrily with the king to the banquet. And this thing pleased Haman, so he had a gallows made. Now, Haman, prideful, name means magnificent. Likes to talk about himself. It's all about him. Look at the range of emotions, though. Verse 9, he goes out joyful with a glad heart. Into verse 9, he's filled of indignation. <clears throat> By the time he gets back in verse 11 and 12, he's happy again. Verse 13, he's upset again. And then at the end of verse 14, he's happy again. I, I can't handle that up and down of emotions. I can't. I know there's some people that like to live off drama. I don't get that. When I see these verses, once again, verses 9 through 14, and I see the range of emotions with this man, that's not the type of person I'd want to hang out with. It reminds me of a verse in the book of James. James chapter 1, it says, When we do not seek the will and wisdom of the Lord, we're like a wave tossed to and fro. The Bible says we're unstable in all of our ways. You know what, Haman? That's unstable. You never know what you're going to get when you talk to him. At one moment you talk to them, everything's great, happy. The next moment, woe is me, my life is horrible, it's no worth use worth living. But the next moment, oh great, everything's wonderful, God's so good. Those are difficult people to be around. Haman has that personality of he goes with the ups and the downs. There's no foundation of his life, none in any way whatsoever. He allows the emotion and the situations to get the best of him. Now we're introduced to his wife here, his wife Zeresh. Now, She's an interesting gal. Her name means gold. And I find that very interesting, because look at her advice. Verse 14, Let a gallows be made, fifty cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it, and then go merrily with the king to the banquet. Now, if you know anything about Esther, and if you don't know this, I'm giving a tidbit away. At the end of chapter 7, Haman gets hanged on the gallows that he made to hang Mordecai. 
Where did this great nugget of wisdom come from? His wife, verse 14. Now, I'm not, no, 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 I'm not making a comment about wives, please. Hear out my point. Proverbs 16 says wisdom is more valuable than gold. I find it fascinating that her name means gold. But in Proverbs 16, God says wisdom is more valuable than gold. Isn't there an irony there? The wisdom of his wife that said build the gallows, hang Mordecai at the end of chapter 7 is the same gallows that hang Haman. And that came from the wisdom of his spouse whose name means gold. What are we talking about here? Once again, verses 9 through 14. When you live your life in the wisdom of yourself and of the world, the Bible says you're unstable, you're tossed to and fro, and you have these horrible highs and lows of emotion. Why? Because you don't have the Lord as your foundation. Don't you work with people, know people, maybe seen marriages like this. Good, bad, good, bad. No, that's not the way the Lord wants it. He doesn't want us to have those ups and downs, ups and downs. He goes, I am your rock, I am your foundation, I am the one to get you through this. The reason Zeresh and the reason Haman have these ups and downs is because they're not focused on the Lord in any way whatsoever. So, with that mindset now, the story takes quite a turn here in chapter 6. It says, that night the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers, who had sought to lay hands on King Azarias. And the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Now this is a flashback to the end of chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, Mordecai overheard a plot to have King Azarias killed, and so he went and told everybody. And if you remember correctly, a couple weeks ago when we taught on that, we taught about how sometimes you do the right thing, you do the good thing, and no one notices. And how frustrating that is to serve and to give of yourself, of your time, your energy, and resources, and no one ever says thank you or notices. And we talk about how you serve and you give unto the Lord, not to man. You do it for God, not for anybody else. Well, finally here in chapter 6, Mordecai is recognized for what he did. Now, I use that phrase a lot. It's a God thing. Verse 1 of chapter 6, the king couldn't sleep. Why? It's a God thing. Isn't it fascinating to know that the night before Mordecai is about to be hanged by Haman, the king can't sleep, and he just by chance is brought to his attention of what Mordecai has done. That's a God thing. How many times have you been praying and praying and praying about something, nothing ever happens, and then the day before, the moment before, the night before, it finally comes together? It's a God thing. Now, I look at this passage, this passage speaks volumes to me because there's a lot of times at night I can't sleep, verse 1. And I used to fight this and struggle this and try to go back to sleep, and now what I do, and I'm not trying to say this to sound ultra-spiritual, if I can't sleep at night, I just spend that time praying. God, if you woke me up at 2 o'clock in the morning, whoever's heavy on my heart, I'm just going to pray about it. You know, eventually you fall back to sleep. Why fight it? If the Lord is waking me from sleep for a reason, might as well use that time on a uh, good reason. I firmly believe of that phrase, heavy on the heart. It says in the book of John chapter 14 that God brings things to your remembrance. If I'm awake at 2 or 3 in the morning and God is bringing somebody's name into my mind at 2 or 3 in the morning, I might as well pray for him. I don't need to know what's going on. I just need to pray. See here in verse 1 of chapter 6, the king is awoke out of the sleep. God is moving. God is working. Mordecai wasn't forgotten about. God just brought that information out at the right time, at the right place. Verse 4, so the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Isn't this book amazing? Verse 5, then the king's servant said to him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. 
So Haman came in, and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Verse 6 is amazing. Verse 6 reveals this man's heart. This man is a prideful man. Uh, one of my favorite little uh, uh, proverbs, it's not in the Bible, but just in the world, is people don't think about you as much as you think they're thinking about you. We always think people are talking about us. You walk into a room and people are talking. As soon as you walk into the room, they stop talking. Why? Well, they were obviously talking about me. Maybe they were talking about something they didn't want you to hear. We always think it's about us. We have that. One of my pastor friends uses this phrase I've shared with you before. We have a problem of ingrown eyeballs. We only see ourselves from what it is from our position. We are a very prideful group of people. Haman, verse 6, obviously the king's talking about me. Turn, if you will, to Philippians chapter 2. Let's talk about this problem here of ingrown eyeballs for a little bit and thinking only of ourselves. It's always about us. Philippians chapter 2. It says in Philippians 2, verse 1, Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ... If any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Unity. We want unity. We want unity in the body. We want unity together as, as a body of believers. One of Satan's greatest weapons is to sow, to sow discord and disunity. Verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Is that not a great verse? Put others first. I, I've seen the acronym done numerous times before, that idea of joy. Joy is Jesus, others, and then yourself. You put other people first. We have a problem with this, though. We look at ourselves first. We put our interests first. That's why one of the first verses on marriage is what? Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Okay, great verse there. But later on down in that, Ephesians 5, Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as you love your own bodies. Paul's basically saying, men, if you would just love your wife with an ounce of the love that you have for yourself, your marriage would be infinitely better. Putting others first. Amen only thinks of himself. This, this idea is something that we struggle with from a very young age. You know, as our boys are getting older, They've all reached now to the point of wanting each other's attention. Even, even Layden now is learning the boy's names, and when he wants Elias' attention, he'll just try to say, Elias, Elias, wanting so bad for Elias to look at him. Judah will draw this picture, and he's so proud of his pictures. He wants Elias, the big brother, to see it, and, and Elias to pay attention to it. So Judah shows Elias. Elias just what? Ignores it. So Elias, come on, buddy. Show, show some attention to your brother. So Elias never looks at the picture. Looks great, Judah. That's not having a good heart. A good heart is stopping and looking. And, and one of the points we try to tell the boys is if it's important to them, it's important to you. Because why? Verses 3 and 4 of Philippians chapter 2, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not for your own interest, but also for the interests of others. Why do we want to do that? Because look at verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's the mindset of Christ. When Christ was hanging on the cross, he was thinking of you. And that's what it comes down to. Haman does not have that mindset. And if you work with people, live with people, are married to people that only think about themselves, you know how that selfishness, that ingrown eyeballs, can cause so much hurt and pain. Haman is the example of that. Let's finish up here now, Esther chapter 6. Haman answered, The king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, and Haman goes through this long list, verse 8, let him have a royal robe, a special horse, the king's written on the royal crest, verse 9, let him be... Um, 
brought around, paraded around the city, and everybody delights in him. But look at verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robe and the horse as you've suggested, and do so for Mordecai, the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Let nothing undone of all that you have spoken. I love verse 10. I love it. I I, I was saying at the first service, if I could go back in time and watch certain events in the Bible unfold, I would love to watch Moses' snakes eat the Pharaoh's snakes. I'd just love to see that. I would love to see Elijah mocking the prophets of Baal and calling fire down from heaven. I would love to see I would love to see Charlton Heston part the Red Sea. I would love to see those things. And I would love to see the expression on Haman's face when the king says verse 10, do it for Mordecai. I would love to see that expression. So what does Haman do verse 11? So Haman takes the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed it before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now it's not great. I mean, is that not just a wonderful eating humble pie, eating whatever you want to call it, eating crow. It, it happened right there. I love that. Well, Haman, this emotional little man that he is, whose name means magnificent, verse 12, afterward Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered, verse 13, when Haman told his wife Zeresh all that had happened to him, and his wise men, and his wife, and everything. Now, see, now look at this. Now, this is what's difficult to be a friend of Haman. Haman comes home. He had a bad day at work. So since Haman had a bad day at work, guess what? His wife and family and all of his kids and all of his friends, they all have to have bad days too, because that's Haman. If I'm happy, you have to be happy. If I'm sad, you have to be sad. Your world stops turning because of Haman. Is that not pride? Is that not selfishness? Do we all not know some Hamans in our life? That whatever is happening in their world, you have to be a part of it. The drama of it. Now understand the biblical point of this. There is a great verse, and I believe it's in the book of Romans, that says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. I think that's a very important verse. If somebody calls me, and there's something God has done something good in their life, I will rejoice with them because I want to. If somebody calls, and it's a phone call where things are going bad, I will weep with them because my heart breaks for them. That is not what we're talking about here with Haman. With Haman, we're talking about a selfishness, a pride, where his world has to control everybody else's world. Now, let's be honest. Do you live with the Haman? Do you work with the Haman? Do you go to school with the Haman? Where just this drama eats you up. It sucks all the joy out of having a relationship with them. You are afraid to talk to them because you don't know where the conversation is going to go, and you just know if I get caught in Haman world... It's going to bring me down. What do you do about that? What do you do when this person is unstable, as the Bible says in James 1? Well, for many years, I thought it was my job, my responsibility to be there for every Haman in the world. And then I started realizing I'm really not helping them in any way whatsoever. My job is to point people towards Jesus Christ. That's my job. My job is to point them towards Christ and and to tell them, if you desire a deeper relationship with the Lord, he's the one that gives you the strength. Jesus is the one that said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus is the one that never sleeps nor slumbers. He's the God that's always on call. That's God's responsibility. Our job as Christians is just to point them in the right direction. If you know some Hamans, you may have to step back and say, I'm actually doing a disservice to them by constantly jumping into their little world and trying to help them fix their problems. You're not helping them. If anything, you're becoming that security blanket to them when they really need to have Christ be the security blanket that gets them through these things. Haman, how many times have we read already? Whatever he's going through... He brings everybody in. I was reading a great book on discipleship. And in this book, it had a wonderful, wonderful story about this. And I'm just going to read that to you here real quick. 
It talks about a man was crossing a bridge, and he noticed someone coming the opposite direction. The, the stranger seemed to be coming toward him to greet him. As the stranger grew closer, the man could discern they didn't know each other, but yet they looked very similar. They kind of dressed alike. They kind of looked right. The only difference was that the stranger had a rope wrapped around many times around his waist. If stretched out, the rope would probably reach a length of about 30 feet. Well, the stranger began to unwrap the rope as he walked by, and just as the two men were about to meet, the stranger said, Pardon me, would you be so kind as to hold the end of the rope for me? The man agreed without a thought, reached out and took it. Thank you, said the stranger, and then he added, Two hands now, and remember, hold tight. At that point, the stranger jumped off the bridge. The man on the bridge abruptly felt a strong pull from the now extended rope. He automatically held tight and was almost dragged over the side of the bridge. What are you trying to do, he shouted to the stranger below. Just hold tight, said the stranger. This is ridiculous, the man thought. Again, he yelled over the edge, why did you do this? Remember, said the other, if you let go, I will be lost. But I cannot pull you up, the man cried. I am your responsibility, said the other. I did not ask for this, the man said. If you let go, I am lost, repeated the stranger. The man began to look around for help. No one was within sight. He began to think about his predicament. Here he was, eagerly pursuing an opportunity, and he was sidetracked. Maybe I can tie the rope somewhere, he thought. He examined the bridge carefully, but there was no way to get rid of his newfound burden. So he again yelled over the edge, What do you want? Just your help, came the answer. How can I help? I cannot pull you in. There's no place to tie the rope while I find someone who can help you. Just keep hanging on, replied the dangling man. That will be enough. Finally, he devised a plan. Listen, he explained to the man below. I think I know how to save you. He rapped. He mapped out the idea. The stranger could climb back up the rope by wrapping it around him. Loop by loop, the rope would become shorter. But the dangling man had no interest in the idea. I don't think I can hang on much longer, warned the man on the bridge. You must try, appealed the stranger. If you fail, I die. Suddenly a new idea struck the man on the bridge. It was different and even alien to his normal way of thinking. He goes, I want you to listen carefully, he said, because I mean what I'm about to say. The dangling man indicated he was listening. I will not accept the position of choice for your life, only for my own. I hereby give back the position of choice for your own life to you. What do you mean, the other asked. I mean simply it's up to you. You decide which way this ends. I will become the counterweight. You do the pulling. You bring yourself up. I will even tug some from here. He unwound the rope, found his waist, braced himself to be a counterweight. He was ready to help as soon as the dangling man began to act. You cannot mean what you say, the other shrieked. You would not be so selfish. I am your responsibility. What could be so important that you would let someone die? Do not do this to me. After a long pause, the man on the bridge uttered slowly, I accept your choice. And voicing those words, he freed his hands and continued his journey over the bridge. Now, I like that story. Because when you get caught up in the Hamans of this world, you have a tendency, and I have a tendency, to think, I can fix this person. I can fix this situation. I can take care of it. And the truth of the matter is you can and I can't. It's Christ and Christ alone. When I look at Haman here and Esther, I see this man that controls everybody with his drama, his emotions, his whining, his whatever. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. We will rejoice with those who rejoice. We will weep with those who weep. We will be there for people going through difficult times. But if people do not want... If they do not want to go deeper in their walk with Christ, what are we supposed to do to help fix the situation? With Haman here, he's an emotional man. Now finally, his wife in verse 13, she actually has some pretty good advice here. She goes, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but surely fall before him. Now that's a golden wisdom nugget right there. Basically she's saying, if this guy is a Jew, you can't win. It goes back to one of the first verses we talked about with Esther. Genesis 12.3, God said, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you. God says about the Jewish people, those that bless the Jews will be blessed, those that curse the Jews will be cursed. Zeresh got that. She said, this man, if he is a Jew, 
you will not prevail against him. That is a golden wisdom nugget right there. Verse 14. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. This sets us up now for the final point here. Now I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 of chapter 7. And as I read it, I want to share these verses with you beforehand so you can think about these verses as we go through this chapter. I don't believe in karma, but I believe in Galatians 6, 7. Galatians 6, 7 says, Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. And I believe that firmly. I don't believe in karma, but I believe in whatever you sow, that you will reap. The Bible says in Galatians 6, If you sow to the flesh, you will reap of the flesh, you'll reap of destruction. If you sow to the Spirit, you will reap of the Spirit, and you'll be blessed in the Lord. Haman sowed seeds in the flesh. Anger, pride, death. He wanted to kill the Jews. Well, what he gets at the end of chapter 7 is the result of his life, of what he did. So often in life we see people whine and complain over situations that they're in, that they're situations that they put themselves in. And then they're not happy about what happens. You don't need to go to these scriptures. Just write them down. You can look at them later. I'm going to read them to you. First one is Proverbs 26, 27. Proverbs 26, 27. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it. He who rolls a stone will have it roll back on him. Next one, Proverbs 28.10. Proverbs 28.10. Whoever causes the upright to go astray in an evil way, he himself will fall into his own pit. He himself will fall into his own pit. And one last one here out of the book of Ecclesiastes 10.8. Ecclesiastes 10.8. He who digs a pit will fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent. How many times in life do you know somebody that, once again, that you either work with, that you know, that gets themselves into situations? It's their fault, but it's never their fault. Haman is that type of guy. He's getting himself into a situation here, and as he gets himself in the situation, he's going to face the consequences of his sin. Galatians 6, 7, you will reap what you sow. That is a God-given point. May 1st today. People are going to start doing beans and corn here probably this month. If you plant beans, what comes up? Surprise of surprise, beans. If you plant corn, what comes up? Corn. That's the way it works in nature. That's the way it works in your spiritual life too. Whatever you plant seeds into your spiritual life, that is what you reap. That is what happens. Now, does this mean that all of us are destined because we've all done sin and done wrong? No. God's grace is a beautiful thing, isn't it? God's grace and mercy forgives us makes us clean, as we just talked about last week with Easter. Christ hung on the cross and said, it is finished, it is done, and so therefore we can be born again, we can have a new relationship with Christ. All of us bring a lot of seeds of flesh and destruction into our spiritual walk, and God says, I'm there to forgive and forget so you can move on. But Haman, there's no repentance in this man's heart, only death and destruction. Let's see what happens. Remember those passages we read this chapter now, verse 1. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. On the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request up to half the kingdom? It shall be done. And Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy can never compensate for the king's law. She says, Hey, you know what? If we had just been enslaved... I probably could have let that go. But they don't want to just enslave us. They want to kill us. They want to annihilate us. Verse 5. So King Azarius answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary, the enemy, is the wicked Haman. 
So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Verse 7, Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life. For he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he also assault the queen while I'm in the house? When the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now Harbana, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows, fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. And the king said, Hang him on it. So when they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, the king's wrath subsided. That is one of the best examples of you reap what you sow. The irony in this of, of Haman making the gallows to kill Mordecai. The night before Mordecai is supposed to be killed, the king can't sleep, so he goes back and reads the records. Find out that Mordecai did something good, saved his life. He wants to honor Mordecai. So now that Mordecai is honored, then they find out that Haman is the one that has the plan to kill the Jews, and so therefore Haman is now hanged on it. I cannot stress to you enough, there are times in your life where you have what I call Esther moments where you stop and you say, Lord, what are you doing? Nothing is working out. This is not going the way it's supposed to. I'm just trying to serve you and love you. And everything keeps falling apart. That's an Esther moment. You have to trust that God is moving and working behind the scenes even when you don't see it. That's what the book of Esther is about. Now, there's still three chapters left because the royal decree is still there to have the Jews killed. And the rest of the book of Esther deals with how they take care of that. But what you see here in chapters 5, 6, and 7, you see Haman, a man that lived according to the flesh, lived according to his pride. You see this man reaping what he sowed. You see God's hand of divine protection stepping in and taking care of it. You see the result of a life lived on emotion, on drama. As the Bible says in James 1, that person is unstable. That's not what God wants us to do. God wants us to live our life in His will, His guidance, His direction in all ways and all things. And that's what we learn here from Esther 5, 6, and 7. Marv, you can come forward for the final song. Well, Marv's come forward here. Let's just have a word of prayer. Let's pray this lesson into our lives. Lord, as we just sit here and we just read what you have written, Lord, I pray for us. I pray that we would not be a life run by emotion, run by drama. It would be a life run by you. Lord, I pray that as we all have Hamans in our life, Lord, give us wisdom on how to deal with it, how to point them towards you, how to point them towards Christ, to not allow the emotion to rule and control us, but only you. And Lord, if there's someone here today that is planting seeds of flesh, destruction. In the name of Jesus, show them the problems that will come out of that and let us fall into your hands of grace, mercy, and love. We lift this up in your name. Amen.